We come to church to hear preaching that helps us to grow. That's what we're looking at right now. Romans chapter 9. The sermon should edify. It should build up. There's often an evangelistic call in it, but it's for believers. The expository preaching is to build up believers, to encourage believers, ultimately to give us a sense of God so we can worship him rightly and better. And we're in Romans 9, a wonderful part of Romans, a section that's about this wonderful doctrine called election. Election, a doctrine that's often hated by some, ignored by others, but is throughout scripture to comfort God's people and here to teach us just how God saves. Last week, I brought you a message, God's Sovereignty Part 1, where we looked at true Israel. And today, I want to bring you a message, God's Sovereign Purpose Part 2, the children of promise. The children of promise. Let's read the whole paragraph, Romans chapter 9, 6 through 13. This is one unit of thought. Paul's making a case here. He's starting really the argument that will continue all the way through chapter 11. But I've had to break it down into multiple sermons. I think you'll see why. And we'll be doing that throughout Romans 9, by the way. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is about Israel. It's about God's sovereignty. It's about election. It's about how God has always preserved a remnant. It is about God's promises, specifically his promises to Israel. I told you last week, overall, the passage breaks down like this. God's word never fails. That's the main argument that Paul's making here. He starts that in verse 6. God's word never fails. Then he begins to prove it. He proves it through Old Testament citations, through quotes from the word of God. And you'll see many quotes coming up through chapter 9. Paul makes his case from the Bible. We don't often do that. We should do more of that as we talk to other people. I've heard people believe some really crazy things. And when you ask them, where's that found in the Bible? They don't go to the Bible because it's not there. We need to go to scripture always like Paul has done here as he makes his case. And he heard directly from Jesus. So he could say things that were not in the Old Testament. He still goes back and cites the word of God. So it's not as if the word of God ever has failed. It never fails. And now he backs that up with two main arguments right here in this paragraph. We saw the first one last week. Not all are true Israel. Not all Israel are true Israel. True spiritual Israel. Not all the physical descendants of Abraham are the saved descendants of Abraham. From the ethnic group called Israel. From national Israel, there's a smaller group within that that are actually true Israel because they've been saved. They believed on the Messiah. They had faith alone in Christ alone, Paul said. And he's already made that case back in Romans chapter 4. But here he 
opens up the second part of his argument. It's not only because not all are true Israel, but because not all of Abraham's children are chosen. They didn't all have faith. That's speaking of from their vantage point. But now he starts to speak from God's vantage point. He tells us God didn't choose every single individual in the nation Israel to be saved, spiritually saved, eternally saved. Yes, he chose the whole nation to serve him. They were elect in that sense. They had a purpose. We looked at the purpose for Israel last week. But that did not mean God chose every single Israelite to be saved eternally. Now, if the gospel is first to the Jew, it will bring up this question Paul's addressing. If the gospel should go first to the Jew, which he said back in Romans 1, which Paul did with his practice, he took it to the synagogues, and then he went to the Gentiles. If that's the case, then why are most Jews not believers, not saved? That's what this section of scripture is addressing. Starting in 9 verse 1 all the way through the end of Romans 11. Why is the Jew not saved? And he is making his case here. He is making his argument. And he's saying it's not as if the word of God has failed. Just because he gave these promises to the nation. And not everybody's a believer. The word of God will never fail. Or literally fall. God's word doesn't fall to the ground. God's word doesn't fall down empty and not fulfill that which it went out for. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. We're studying Joshua on Wednesday nights. And when we get to the end of that book, here's what Joshua says. Not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel failed. And that again, in Hebrew, literally the word is fallen to the ground. All the promises came to pass. God said, go into the land. He would give them the land. Go into the land and take possession. And I will run off the enemies before you. They will melt away like wax melts on a candle. And at the end, right before Joshua dies, he is saying not one of those promises has fallen to the ground. Now Paul is saying all the promises God made to Israel, not one of them has fallen to the ground. All will succeed. God chose the nation to serve him, but God did not promise to save every single Israelite who has ever lived. So today we continue with this argument starting in verse 7. We look go 7 through 9, looking at this children of promise concept. There's the physical children, and then there's the children of promise. Always, of all the people, God has chosen to save some. And that will bring up many questions in your mind as we talk about election. Some of which were answered in Romans chapter 8. But no worries. Paul knows these questions come up on election. He's going to address them later in Romans 9. He will address the majority of the questions that people have today, even on election throughout Romans 9. I'll bring up some today as well, but most of those questions we'll answer when we get a little further into this chapter. So in nine, chapter 9, 7 through 9, Paul's going to help us. He's going to help us understand why not all of Israel is currently saved. And he's going to look back to the Old Testament to do that. He's going to start with Abraham's son, Isaac. He's going to give two examples Today we're looking at Isaac. Next week we're looking at um, Jacob and Esau. So Isaac versus Ishmael today. Next week, Jacob versus Esau. Now today he'll give three examples. Three examples, three descriptions of his divine election. God's divine election of spiritual Israel. See, in Paul's day, he can say they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 
And this example goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish nation. This shouldn't surprise you, reader, he's saying, because if you know the history of Israel, if you know the history that started with Abraham and then down to his son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob, you would understand that God doesn't choose everyone that is descended from Abraham. So the first description. The first description is the chosen seed. He uses the phrase seed, and he's speaking here of the chosen seed. The seed of Abraham. Now, if you read the Bible, and I'm sure many of you have read from cover to cover, you'll see that this theme, this biblical theological theme called the seed, starts in Genesis, speaking of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And it runs all the way through the New Testament until the end of the Bible. Seed is the literal translation of the Greek term sperma, which appears twice here in verse 7 and once in verse 8. Now, normally, seed speaks of descendants. In the Bible, it's the biological idea of a man's seed producing his children and so on. So often your translations will say descendants. If that's what it says here in this verse, that's not a wrong understanding. I do like the more literal seed because now we can connect back to the Old Testament and follow that theme. There is a seed. There are descendants of Abraham. And after Abraham, the seed theme often ties back to him over and over. It's often not just seed, but the seed of Abraham. We find that phrase many times in the New Testament. God chose Abraham out of all the Gentile people. Abraham worshiped idols with his family. God chose him By the way, Abraham did nothing to earn that. He didn't choose God. God chose him. God made a covenant with Abraham. He did not say, Abraham, if you do all these things, I will always be your God. No, it was a unilateral covenant. Abraham, I am your God, is what he said. I am with you. I am with your descendants. I will bless them. I will give you the land. I will make your name great. And through all the families of the earth, I will Bless all those families through you. That's the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. But we need to talk about seed just a bit before we dive in. Because the term is used a few ways in the New Testament. What is the seed of Abraham? We see four different ways that this term, this phrase is used. First of all, Abraham's biological seed. That's what we're looking at here. His biological descendants. His physical descendants. Genesis 15, 5. God says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. Talking to Abraham. If you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants, your seed literally be. Genesis 15, 5. Look up at the stars. Now he could see a lot more back then than we can see today. But he still couldn't see all the stars out there. And God said, you'll have more descendants than the stars. He's talking about the physical descendants. Sometimes in the Bible, The seed speaks of national Israel, the whole nation. That's Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, seed of Abraham, my friend. So there God is saying the whole nation is the seed. And that would be an extension of the physical descendants of Abraham making up the nation. The third way this phrase is used in a spiritual sense now for believing Jews and Gentiles together. The seed of Abraham is used really only one time in Galatians 3.29, to be believing Jews and Gentiles together. Paul writes, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. It doesn't mean a Gentile becomes a Jew. Paul is saying, 
Why are you Galatians trying so hard to be Jews? You're already the spiritual descendants of Abraham. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to put yourself under the Mosaic law. You already believe. And then the fourth way it's used is to speak of Messiah. The seed can be used to speak of the Messiah. Acts 3.23, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, that's a singular seed in Greek there, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham will have a great number of descendants. In that sense, his physical seed will be numerous. But the single seed that will bless all the nations of the earth, that is Christ the Messiah. So with that in mind, let's go back now to verse 7. Context is going to help determine what it is that the seed of Abraham is referencing. And here we're going to see that the seed of Abraham is in reference to Abraham's physical descendants. Romans 97, Paul's using the seed of Abraham to refer to his biological descendants, Israel, the, the Jews. That's the context that we're looking at in 9 through 11. It would be wrong to try to insert Gentiles in here when we're talking about the Jews. That is the context. But Paul is going to say, not all the physical seed of Abraham are saved. God made a choice. So let's look. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. Not all of ethnic Israel is true spiritual Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. Not all Israelites are children of Abraham because they are from Abraham as their forefather. Not all of Abraham's biological descendants are children of the promise. But not all saved. God didn't make a promise to all of them. Just being connected to Abraham as your father is not enough. Abraham's first son was Ishmael, born of a slave woman. But that is not who God said would continue the promise. He chose Isaac. And so he's starting this conversation about Isaac right here by saying, look, we all know Jews, all Jews, Paul is saying, that are reading Romans, that are in the Roman church, know that nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. Abraham also remarried. He didn't just have Ishmael and Isaac. He remarried after Sarah died. He had a wife named Keturah. If you count up the names of the sons she had, there's six more children right there. So of Abraham's eight children, only one. Only one carried on the covenant of promise. Only one was chosen. God selected one out of eight. And the others, most of which we know nothing about later in Scripture. But, verse 7, but through Isaac, your seed will be named. Ishmael had been born 13 years before Isaac. 13 years. The oldest son is going to receive the inheritance. That includes the inheritance that God has promised to Abraham. Abraham thinks that's the case. Ishmael is the oldest. He should inherit everything. Yet God chose Isaac to carry on the family line. It's not all the children that are going to get this promise. It's just Isaac. Not only would Abraham's physical seed be born, just as God had promised. That in itself is a miraculous thing. And we'll look at that in a moment. But God would be the one that gave that promise through Abraham to Isaac. In other words, today, you can't just say, my parent is a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. 
That's not the way it works in God's economy. God doesn't do that. God didn't even do that with the very first Jew, Abraham. He chose, of all his sons, he chose Isaac. This is God's divine sovereignty. Paul quotes here to prove it from Genesis 22:12. So God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy. Talking about Ishmael. Don't be distressed because of Ishmael. And your maidservants who are going to be sent out because Sarah wanted them to leave the camp to go somewhere else and live. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her voice. For through Isaac, your seed shall be named. All these descendants of Abraham that are going to come about, the blessings apply to the ones through Isaac. God made a choice. God made a choice. God chose one of the sons to be the chosen seed. From Ishmael will come the nations of the Ishmaelites, mostly Arabs. But from Isaac will eventually come the Jews. Now look here at the text, this quote. Paul uses the verb named. Named. Through Isaac, your seed will be named. Or maybe your translation says called. It could be translated called because it's the same verb we've already seen back in chapter 8, 28 and 830 for the divine calling. I think Paul's using a play on words here. He knows what the Old Testament says. And he knows it's speaking of Isaac and this promise that Isaac will be the one who carries on this promise. And God has chosen Isaac. And not only did God choose the name for Isaac, but he called him. He called him in time is the idea. Just like we're called in Romans 8, 28. Those who are called. God will take care of us. Just like God foreloved and predestined his people and will call them in time. So he's saying not only did God choose Isaac, but he called him in time. From Isaac will come the true descendants of Abraham who received the promise. Now this is really a good argument. Think about it. Every Jew would know this. Every Jew would know Abraham's history. If they knew nothing else in the Old Testament, they would know Abraham. He's the one who received the promise from God. He received the Abrahamic covenant. From that comes later the Mosaic covenant. Every Jew would know Abraham's story, Isaac's story. And if they disagreed with Paul, they're basically saying here that all the sons of Abraham are the same. That Ishmael is just the same as Isaac. And he also was saved and he also receives the promises. And all the sons of Keturah. No Jew would say that. That would be blasphemous because God made it clear. God made a choice. God decided before Isaac was even born, before Isaac was even conceived, before he had done anything good or bad, God made a choice. He chose to choose. He chose to name Isaac. He chose to save Isaac. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the moment that God makes his covenant with Abraham, there is a particularizing. There is a selection. All the seed of Abraham are not the seed or the children in this special sense of being the ones that are to carry out God's purpose and in whom God's word is to be established and held firm. So it shouldn't surprise people that not all the physical descendants of Israel are saved today, Paul says, because if you go all the way back to the history of our people, you see God making a choice between the sons of Abraham. Secondly, the elect children, verse 8. The elect children. Just another way of saying the chosen seed. Paul uses 
various descriptions. A good preacher will say the same thing different ways to get the point across. And I've entitled this the elect children. Election. As I said, it's a hated doctrine. It's an ignored doctrine. Let me define it for you though because it is in the Bible. It shouldn't be hated. Election, according to the textbook biblical doctrine, election is God's decision in choosing a special group or certain persons for salvation or service. The nation for service, individuals for salvation. They go on to say this term is used especially of the predestination of the individual recipients of salvation. So it's God's choosing. It's God's choice. It's God's selecting. Out of all that he could save, he chooses the ones he wants to save. Now here's how Paul brings this back to Israel. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God. Children of the flesh, those born from Abraham, are his physical descendants. But the children of God are different. The children of the flesh, that's just natural, natural children from Abraham. The children of God, that's those who believe. We've seen that already before, haven't we, in Romans 8. Those who have faith in the promises of God. Faith in God to save through his coming Messiah. Or on this side of the cross, faith in Christ as we look back and we understand who Christ is and what he did for us and how we can be saved through him. Let's look at children of the promise back in Romans 8 verse 14. We want to be sons of God. That's what it means to be saved. Children of God. Romans 8, 14, for as many as are being led by the Spirit of God. If you have the Holy Spirit and he's leading you, which you will if you have him within you. In other words, if you're saved, if you have faith in Christ, you have the Spirit. Paul's already said that in Romans 8 earlier. These are sons of God. What's a son of God? Somebody who has the Holy Spirit. Who has the Holy Spirit? Believers in Christ. All believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit. They're sons of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So it's not a coincidence in chapter 9 that Paul once again uses this phrase, children of God. Just because they're born in the line of Abraham, just because they're physically related to him, does not mean that they're children of God. The seven other sons are not children of God. They're not called children of promise. You see, too often in those days and in Jesus' days and in our days, people go back and they say, my family is Christian. I was born a Christian. And Frank and I hear that and Owen as well in the membership interviews. And we have to say, actually, nobody is born a Christian. At some point, God changed your heart and you believe. Now, that might be so young, you don't remember it. But nobody comes out the womb already saved. In Jesus' day, the Jews said this, though. They said, we are Abraham's seed. You see, there's that word again. We are Abraham's seed. We are Abraham's physical descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Because he was telling them they were a slave to their sin. And they say, how is it, Jesus, that you say you will become free? How dare you tell us we can become free if we follow you? We've never been enslaved. We're Abraham's seed. John the Baptist also addressed this, Luke 3, 8. Therefore, bear fruits, he says, in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to ourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. 
And then he goes on to talk about judgment that's coming on Israel. And he says, but indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't trust in your heritage. Don't trust in your family line. Trust in Christ because the axe is coming soon. And it came in 70 AD, not to wipe out all Jews, but to wipe out Jerusalem and the nation. Many of them scattered, of course. They came back into the land in the 1900s. There's a future for them that we'll look at in Romans 11. But right now, Paul says that just because they're physical descendants does not mean they're children of God. But he says in verse 8, the children of the promise are considered as seed. It's the children of the promise. Of all of Abraham's seed, it's the ones who believe. It's the Jews who believe that our children are promised. The word considered here, we've seen this many times in Romans. It's logizomai. It means to be reckoned. It's an accounting term. It means sometimes you can translate it considered like we see here. But it's the same term used earlier in Romans in chapter 4. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. On his account was credited righteousness because he believed. The sins were taken off his account because he believed righteousness of Christ was put on his account. It's called double imputation. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about. So Abraham's other children, they're not reckoned children of the promise. They're not considered children of the promise. That's not their label. If you were to pull up their family tree, their genealogy, nowhere would it say children of promise. Their heraldry, if they had that back then, to put over the mantle, would not say children of promise. Only through Isaac. Because he's considered, he's reckoned as the children of promise. But who's doing the reckoning? Who put that on their account? All of Isaac's children. All that descend from Isaac through Jacob. Who did that? God did the considering. God did the reckoning. God did the imputing. In other words, God decided. When it says right here, the children of the promise are considered as seed, that's a statement on election. That's a statement on election. Out of all the children, the ones that come from Isaac are considered the children of promise. And we'll learn next week, not even all that come from Isaac, just through Jacob, of course. Genesis 17, 18. Abraham did not think this was going to be the case. Go back to Genesis 17 with me. Let's look at some of these verses in detail. Abraham did not think that this was going to happen. There were moments of doubt. Yes, he had faith in God. But he got so old and his wife got so old that he just thought, maybe I need to take things into my own hands. And his wife suggested it. Ishmael is the result. And in Genesis 17, 18, it says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The idea is that Ishmael would be saved, that Ishmael would be blessed, that he would receive the promise. Let him be the one. But God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. Here's where God names Isaac. Even though he's named after what Sarah did, she laughed. And so Isaac means she laughed. I, God says, will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. Even though Abraham had doubts, even though Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands, God said, no, it's going to be Isaac. He's the one who will receive my covenant. 
He's the one, this everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham, it will pass on to Isaac. Ishmael, not a child of the promise. Ishmael went his own way. Some commentators try to say, well, Ishmael was blessed. He was circumcised. God made him a great nation. Yes, that's true. That's happened with a a lot of people to be made a great nation. That doesn't mean they were saved. Look at Genesis 16, 12. This is what is going to happen to Ishmael and his clan. The angel of Yahweh is speaking here and says in verse 12, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he will dwell in the face of all his brothers. Ishmael will go out into the desert. That will eventually end up being the Arabs. And they will turn and attack all the other clans that came from Abraham's sons. Even Israel. Even Israel. So Ishmael is not saved. Who's saved? Isaac. You can say, well, that's just the, the promises of the land. True. But it's also salvation. There was a time where God calls Isaac and the text in Genesis says he believed. He followed God. Just like us. We were chosen. If you're a believer, you're chosen before the foundation of the world. You didn't know that when you were born. Not likely unless your parents told you that really early on. You did not realize that. And then God called you and you believed. And then you look back and you read Romans 8. You read Romans 9 and you read Ephesians 1 and you realize, wow. God did this a long, long time ago, before there was such a thing as time and eternity past. It's God's choice of election that matters, not man's works or family genealogy. What did Isaac do? What did Abraham do? Paul is reminding people as they read Romans 9, it's by God's choice. Luther, Martin Luther said it like this, therefore, it inexorably follows. That the flesh does not make sons of God and the heirs of promise, but only the gracious election of God. Therefore, why does man take pride in his merits and his works, which in no way are pleasing to God? For they are good or meritorious works, but only because they have been chosen by God from eternity that they please him. Even the good works we do as Christians, in other words, are there because God chose those things to happen before time. Just like he chose us. So we've looked at two ways that we've seen Paul describe what is going on here with Israel. The third one, after the chosen seed, number one, and the elect children. The third one, the promised birth. The promised birth. It seemed impossible that Abraham and Sarah could have a child. If it's not Ishmael, God, who's it going to be? Because we're getting old here. So old that women don't have babies when they turn 90. Look at Romans 4.18. Paul's already covered this in Romans. Here in Romans 4, he's talking about Abraham's faith. But it comes up. And later when he speaks of it again in Romans 9, it's already been covered so the reader would know that. Even though I think the Romans, even the Gentiles, knew about the Old Testament. They must have read it. There's no way Paul could quote it this often and then not understand something about what's going on in Genesis. But Romans 4.18, in hope against hope, he believed. Look at Abraham's faith. He believed something even though there seemed to be no hope that it would happen. And yet, he had hope against hope. He believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. And verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead. 
He's over 100 years old, this guy. He's as good as dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. She's over 90. Abraham might be able to function like he needs to, to have children. But Sarah, no, the womb is shut down by then. And yet, verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to do. God made sure of it because he showed up often and reminded Abraham, didn't he? He reminded Abraham. And so now Paul talks about this promised birth in Romans 9, 9. For this is the word of promise. This is the word of God. This is God's word. You can trust it. You know it's in the Old Testament reader. You know it's a promise God made to Abraham. You know God's promises never fail. He's just reminding them over and over. Come on, Jew, you know your Bible. It would be like today if we were talking to Christians and they don't believe in election. And we say, come on, you know Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1. Okay, what does that say? Come on, now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. What does that say? It talks about election. Let's go to Romans 8. Let's go to Romans 9. Okay, now let's talk about what is election. Paul is doing something similar here with these Old Testament quotes. He's saying, come on, Jew, you know. Even the Gentiles need to know this. That not all of ethnic Israel is the ones chosen for salvation. But God made a promise through Isaac. Now he's going to quote from Genesis 21, 12 and 14. Let's go back to Genesis. He's going to pull part of 21, 12 and Genesis 21, 14. And he's going to give a quote here in the epistle to the Romans. Genesis 21, 12. He says here, So God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and your maidservant. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your seed shall be named. Now go to 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, gave her child, and sent her away. So she went and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Let's go to, let's go to Genesis 18. 18.10. I think my notes were still pointing back to what we just talked about it with Ishmael. Genesis 18.10. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. So here's where Paul's getting his quote. I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now go to 14. Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. How many times did he tell Abraham that it's Isaac? That he is going to produce something amazing about this time next year. You might think you're too old, Abraham. You might think she's too old. But next year, you're going to have a son, whether you like it or not. He didn't ask if that was a good idea on Abraham's part or Sarah's part. He just said, you're going to have a son. And about a year before the conception had even happened. It takes nine months. Nine months. This is 12 months, about 12 months out. In other words, Isaac hadn't even been conceived yet. And God is making a choice. God is selecting. God is electing. Now, this is more than just a prediction. He's not just saying, I predict. I'm prophesying that it will come about in a year. It's more than that. This is God promising to come back to them, to come in power and in demonstration to bring this about. It would have to happen. It would have to be some miraculous change in Sarah's womb. 
and some miraculous effect, probably on Abraham's body as well, to bring about this child. It's not just that they will have a child. It's that God will do something miraculous. The promised birth. It will happen. This is to encourage people as they're reading Romans to remember it's God's election. It's God's grace. It's his sovereign grace that saves. It's not man's will. It's not how fast he runs. It's not how hard he works. It's the grace of God that saves. It's the grace of God. God chose Isaac. He was the promised and chosen seed out of all of Abraham's children. God's choice in election is not based on physical descent, but on God's promises. And God's word will always succeed. He said Isaac would be the one. Isaac wasn't even in the mind of Abraham and Sarah. And yet here comes Isaac a year later. And God works through him to save him, to bring about a whole nation, and to save many out of Israel. Even though it seems like a small percent, if you think about it, over the thousands of years the Jews have existed, there have been a faithful remnant. And there will be more who are saved in the future. Let me apply this to us today. And I've already hinted at some of these. What does this teach us today? Because this is about Abraham's history. It's important. We got to learn it. We have to believe it. But how can we apply this to our own thinking today? First of all, God chose Isaac to fulfill his covenant promise. And believer, God has chosen you. God has chosen you to fulfill the new covenant promise. God has chosen you, Gentile. Even though you're not part of Israel. Even though you're not born a Jew. Even though you're not part of the remnant of the Jews. You're part of those God has chosen. God has elected. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him. Now the Ephesians aren't Jews. There might be some Jews in the church there, but he's writing to Gentiles. Just as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That means if you believe in Christ, you're a spiritual child, a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And God has chosen you before you did anything good or bad. Before you had the desire to come to him, God chose you. That's a comfort. That's amazing. He chose me. I don't know if, if you did this, but when I first learned about election, I said, it can't be true. Then I looked at all the verses and I said, well, I guess it's true. Why in the world would you choose me, God? Number two, God's choice is not based on works or will. You've heard me say it today. You've heard it all throughout Romans. You've probably heard it a lot from the pulpit and the lecterns around here. How many times does it come up in the New Testament? It's almost as if we have a problem, don't we? Thinking we've done something to earn God's grace. It's almost even if we're saved, there's this problem where believers tend to go back and try to think, I did something. I need to do more. I need to work harder. No, it's not based on works or will. God chose Isaac before he was even conceived. God chose you from eternity past before you were ever an apple in your mama's eye. God chose you, believer, from eternity past. That's by grace. You ever thought about the grace of God? It's one of the attributes that we're going to study in theology class eventually when we talk about theology proper. The grace of God. You didn't deserve it and you actually deserve the opposite. He deserved eternal punishment, not eternal life. And then God sent his son to pay the price for your sins to be forgiven and righteousness to be accounted to your account. And now you receive the opposite. Not eternal wrath, 
eternal life. Grace is not just giving you favor. It's not just helping the weak. That's called mercy, and God has that attribute as well. Grace is giving you the opposite of what you deserve. You deserved punishment forever, and you receive life forever. Talk about God's grace. Third application for us and the way we think about our life and our salvation and the Bible here, God calls his chosen in time. In time. Even though God had chose Isaac before the foundation of the world, God still had to divinely call him in this life. He couldn't just say, well, my parents, and this is rare that it would ever happen, right? It's, it's only in the Bible that it would happen in the Old Testament, that the parents are told that the son will be a believer, that the son will receive the covenant of promise, that the son would follow Yahweh. Even though that Isaac was chosen before the foundation of the world, he still had to believe in time and be called divinely by God so that he could believe. And even though, believer, you know that the Bible teaches election, that you were chosen before the foundation of the world in eternity past, God still had to call you in time. He still had to change your heart. In other words, we can't, we can't just say, well, God chose me. God chose me. Yeah, he also had to call you. He had to do everything. All you did to contribute to your salvation was your sin, which made salvation possible. Yes, you had to respond in faith. Yes, you had to respond through repentance. You should do that when you hear the gospel. But God gave you that ability as well. This divine call, this regeneration, this being born again has happened in your life as well. And so now when you think of an unbelieving family member, a friend, someone that you're telling the gospel to, you can't say this person's elect or not elect because they don't know. They haven't believed yet. And you certainly don't know either. You see, that's where a lot of confusion comes with election is that people think we're going around saying, oh, these good people over here, they look like elect. Let's go tell them the gospel. But you guys over here, hmm. No, there's no E on the forehead, Spurgeon said. There's no mark on the person that we can see. There's nothing that would tell us who would believe because some people we thought would never be saved get saved. And some people we think are not far from the kingdom never actually believe. It's the calling as well. It's not just this idea of election, but God calls in that person's life. And so someone can't grow up in a family and say, I'm elect, I'm just waiting. Well, then believe. Trust in Christ, turn from your sins if that is you. But until that happens, you can have no assurance that you are elect. No one can until they've come to Christ. So let's thank God for his word this morning and what he's done to save us, to save his people. Lord, we thank you for this text. It goes back in time. It goes back thousands of years before Paul, as he talks about what you did with Abraham and Isaac. It comes forward now thousands of years to us. This is how you work, God. You choose by your sovereign grace. And we don't understand it. It's according to your decision, not ours. But we praise you. We thank you. That even though we, we don't understand why you chose us, you did. And now we're to live a holy life for you. We're to live out our life pointing people to Christ and growing in godliness. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us a great desire for those things and help us to remember that if we're believers here today, we're elect, we're chosen, we're saved by grace alone. We thank you for that, Lord. Amen.